0: 1 Timothy chapter 2, this morning we are looking at verses 11 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, verses 11 through 15. Please give your full attention to God's holy and errant word. With self-control. In the classic movie, The Princess Bride, as the mysterious man in black is performing heroic deed after heroic deed in relentless pursuit of the men who had kidnapped Buttercup, the leader of that band of kidnappers, Vincini, keeps exclaiming the word inconceivable and finally after many times of him shouting that word his accomplice Inigo Montoya says his famous line you keep using that word I do not think that you know what it that I don't I do not think that it means what you think it means I do not think that it means what you think it means I think of that line often but particularly when our culture talks about authority. They use the word authority and I listen to what they say and what they are implying by it and I say, you keep using that word but I do not think that it means what you think it means. The world thinks of authority as the power to control others and the opportunity to get your way instead of others getting their way. Just as one example, our Congress has an approval rating of 16%. We do not respect our leaders in Congress in general, our culture does not respect them because the perception is that they are there for their own interests and they're not looking out for the interests of others. As a matter of fact, they look out for their own interests at the cost of others. What's really tragic is when our leaders, our people in positions of authority act that way in the home and in the church. They use their authority, abuse their authority to look for their own interests instead of the interests of others. When you want to understand what authority means, don't go to the world, go to scripture god gets to define what authority is because he is the ultimate authority in the universe and all earthly authority has been appointed by him it comes from him and so he gets to define what authority is and how it operates romans 13 verse 1 there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed one of the Ten Commandments addresses this issue of authority in our lives. It says, honor your father and mother and any good expositor or of scripture will tell you that that commandment not only applies to the authority in the home of the father and the mother, but to all authorities in life. That to be obedient to the Lord, you need to submit to the authorities that God has placed over you. But how does God define authority? If you study his word carefully, you find out that the definition of authority in in Scripture is almost the opposite of how the world defines it. In verse 12 of this passage, we have one of the most ridiculed and despised statements by our culture in all of the New Testament. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. We should not be surprised that the world doesn't understand what it means, because the world has an un- a wrong understanding of what authority is. And a culture that increasingly denies any distinctions between the genders isn't going to understand the idea of God giving different roles to the genders. This is a tough passage, not because it's unclear, but because it is so countercultural. I'm going on vacation later today, so please direct all of your questions and feedback to Pastor Owen. (laughs) I think that one of the reasons that even Christians reject this passage or abuse it and reinterpret it is because we are defining authority the same way that the world does. We don't wanna be sexist, we don't wanna be chauvinist. But if you understand what authority is, you'll understand quickly that it has nothing to do with sexism or chauvinism. Let's start, and that's why I wanna start by defining what authority is before we talk about what Paul is saying here about the distinction in roles between men and women in the church and in the home. God's definition of authority. In the Bible, it says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's an abiding principle of scripture. It plays out in so many areas of life. What Jesus means when he says the last should be first and the first shall be last, he's, he's actually addressing what we're talking about this morning because he's saying that what the world considers as first is actually last in the kingdom of God. And what the world considers last in the kingdom of God is actually first in the kingdom of God. What the world considers first is actually last in the kingdom of God. I may have gotten that mixed up, sorry about that. It's not about controlling others or getting your way. It's about having responsibility for others, about serving their needs, about washing their feet, about being accountable for their welfare. If you're writing down notes, please write that down because according to scripture, that is the essence of authority authority is having responsibility for the well-being of others and being accountable for the well-being of others that's what authority is according to god's word jesus defined it that way and he contrasts it with the world's concept of authority in mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 42 and jesus called them to him his disciples and said to them You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. You hear that principle in the background? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. In Ephesians 5, it talks about authority in the home. And it says there that women are to submit to their husbands but it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Being in authority in the home and in the church is about sacrifice. About laying down your life for the sake of those under your oversight. Putting their needs before your own. And being accountable before God for how well you do that. That's authority. To be an authority is to be a shepherd. Who serves sacrificially for the growth and the protection of those under your care. And to be accountable to the Lord of all. Adam, when he was created, was given the role of being the covenant head of his family and therefore all of his descendants and Eve was created to be his complementary helper the scripture is very clear that this distinction between covenant head and helper is in the context of two beings created by God that are absolutely equal in their essence let me take you back to Genesis chapter 1 and the account of creation there it says, God created, well, let me go back to verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Those verses do away with any basis for racism, sexism, any other kind of ism, that all human beings are created equal in their essence before God. But being equal in our essence doesn't mean that we can't be assigned different roles, different missions to carry out in life. Adam was created to be the head. Eve was created to be his helper. Those roles were meant to complement one another in a beautiful way so that man and woman together could take dominion over the earth as they shared that responsibility. Eve complemented Adam. Or to quote Jerry Maguire, the wife completes the husband. She doesn't duplicate him, she completes him. The first authority figures in Israel were the patriarchs. The patriarchs were the male heads of the households in Israel, began with Abraham and continued with all the other patriarchs. The family of Abraham grew under the leadership of the heads of households until they became the great nation of Israel. And in Israel, the patriarchs were eventually replaced by male elders a position of authority and governing and oversight that continued until the time of Christ and the apostles. And in his ministry, as he set up the foundation of his kingdom, Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles who would then pass on authority over the church of Jesus Christ to the elders of local churches in the New Testament. And as Paul and others spell out the qualities and qualifications for elder there is the assumption that they would be men so god designated the man to lead the family and then as the family grew into the nation of god the visible representation of the kingdom of god on earth israel they were led by men and as the church was established it was led by men why Why didn't God choose the woman to lead in the home and in the church? The answer, the only answer I can give is I have no idea. If you go to scripture to look for a reason, you will not find one. God said it and it was so. And he gives no rationale, no reason. Logic would tell us that in order to have an effective family, and to have an effective church, you need structure, you need hierarchy. If you were starting a company with five employees and somehow those five, the resumes of those five employees were absolutely perfectly equal, they had equal qualifications, equal education, equal training, equal character traits, would you therefore give them all equal responsibilities and equal authority? absolutely not no company no organization could run that way you need some to be supervisors and some to work under authority that's the only way any organization works efficiently so why would God establish the family and the church in an inefficient way but some people will raise the question well what about that great verse in Galatians chapter 3 Galatians 3 verses 28 and 29 that talk about there being no distinction between male and female. Let me read it for you. I'll put it back in context. Go back to verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying there does not deny or contradict anything that I have said. Because I have already told you that according to the account of creation, man and woman were created equal before God. We are equally, fully human beings made in the image of God. We are equally sinners and we are equally in need of grace. And that's what Paul is talking about. You look at the context of Galatians 3, he's not talking about roles that are assigned in the home or in the church. He's talking about salvation. And in terms of salvation, men and women are absolutely perfectly equal. Christ doesn't do away with the distinction that Paul lists there. He, he talks about Jew and Gentile. When you become a Christian, you were still a Jew or a Gentile. He talks about slave or free. When you become a Christian, you're still slave or free. When you become a Christian, you're still male or female. It does, he doesn't do away with those earthly distinctions. What he's saying is, in the sight of God, in terms of the shed blood of Christ, in terms of salvation, there is no distinction. Those, those distinctions are meaningless. So let me clarify, based on what we've said about what authority is in Scripture, that accepting what Scripture teaches about authority, what it doesn't mean when it comes to the roles of men and women. First of all, it doesn't mean that women are in any way inferior to men. It's important. I know I've said that a couple of times, but it's important to underline that because the world doesn't understand authority without a concept of superiority and inferiority. It doesn't apply in the kingdom of God. Specifically, the Bible does not teach that women are less intelligent, less gifted, less capable than men in any area of life inherently and that includes leadership and teaching first Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 teaches that all women are given indispensable gifts for the church and are to use those gifts to minister to the church and to those in the world but remember that authority is not based on inherent superiority or inferiority that actually does away with the argument that I've heard from some Christians that well I know a woman elder and a woman preacher that were very gifted in their preaching, very gifted in their teaching, very intelligent, very Christ-like. Therefore, it has to be blessed of God. But there, you're going back to making the same mistake. You're basing the authority on the superiority of the person, not on God's sovereign call. The second point that scripture teaches is that it doesn't mean, what scripture teaches about authority, it doesn't mean that women can't serve in positions of authority outside of the home in the church. There is nothing in scripture that says that a woman cannot be in a position of authority in civil government or in business or in civic organizations or anywhere else besides the home and the church. The restriction to men having authority is within the boundaries of the home and the church. There's nowhere in scripture that implies any restriction anywhere else in life so hopefully that's background to look at what Paul says here what is the woman's role in the church well let me first put it in context remember from last week those of you with us last week back in verses 9 and 10 Paul addresses the women in the Ephesian church and he exhorts them to seek inner beauty before the Lord not to put their hope and confidence in external beauty Things like braids and gold and pearls and expensive clothes. That their focus should be on pursuing godliness and good works. That that's where the focus of their beauty should be, not outward adornment. And so it's in that context that Paul continues in the same vein when he brings up the subject of submission to authority in verse 11. That submission to the role that she has been assigned by God is an important aspect of inner beauty. And then as we look at what Paul says about the woman in the church, let me first point out, just like last week, I said that women should adorn themselves. Here, Paul begins, don't miss the positive. Let a woman learn. Women should be learning as actively, aggressively, profoundly as men do. Let a woman learn. I say this because in both Jewish history and in church history, leaders have sinfully squelched the education of women in past times. Those of you that are older might remember an old movie named Yentl. It was about, uh, Barbara Streisand played a young Jewish girl who dressed as a boy so that she could go to religious school because girls were not allowed to be educated. And I have to admit that the church has often, even within our own churches, even within our sister churches, even within our own church, we have often been guilty of placing man-made restrictions upon upon what the scriptures allow women to do. Matter of fact, our denomination, many of you know, had a study committee produce a paper that was presented last year and it continues to have follow-up actions and meetings taken about it where we basically confess we have been, at times, as a church, speaking generally, too restrictive. We've gone beyond scripture and not given women the freedom to serve in all the ways that scripture allows. But Paul says, importantly, that women are to be quiet as they learn the scriptures. In order to understand what Paul is saying here, you have to see parallels. When, When we're talking about psalms, sometimes we'll talk about that, The psalms rhyme ideas not words in other words the psalms often use words or phrases that mean the same thing in conjunction with one another and if you see that what we call parallelism in what paul's saying here you see that when he says that women are to learn quietly that's equal to say that women are not to teach and when he says that women are to learn with all submissiveness It's the same thing. It's parallel to him saying they are not to exercise authority over a man. This helps us to understand what it means to learn quietly. As we've seen already in several places in 1 and 2 Thessalonians and also in 1 Timothy, when Paul uses the word quietness, he doesn't mean silence. He doesn't mean keeping your mouth shut. What he means is well, let me give you back to chapter 2 and two verse 2. He says there that we are all to aspire to live a peaceful and quiet life. That doesn't mean a silent life. What Paul means by quietness is, it's in many ways parallel to submissiveness. To be quiet is to be submissive. To be quiet is not to be divisive and disruptive. To be quiet is equal to being peaceable. To not cause disruption, to not be questioning and being disruptive it's parallel to what paul means in another very difficult statement that he makes over in first corinthians chapter 11 verses 33 and 34 where he says as in all the churches of the saints the woman should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says now notice there he also equates being quiet or being silent to being submissive to the authorities in the church so he's talking about not disrupting the teaching of the church, to being submissive to the teaching of the church. There's a sense in which any member of the church takes that vow. When you take a vow to be a member of our church, you say that you're, going, you're not going to be divisive. You're not going to seek to undermine the teaching of the church. Well, in this case, Paul is adding a special. Just like in in Ephesians 5, all Christians are to submit to one another, but there's a special way in which women are to submit to men. Wives are to submit submit to husbands. In the church, women are to submit in a special way when it comes to being quiet. Is that they're not to take on the role of being a teacher of the church, a preacher of the church. This helps you understand why Paul combines teaching with exercising authority. It makes much more sense once you understand what Paul means by the word teaching in this passage. The Greek word that he uses for teaching, didaskalos, is in the Greek, it means teaching. But when Paul uses it in the New Testament, he always means the words of God. The doctrines of the faith. When he uses that word, he always means what the scriptures teach us about God, us salvation, and how we are to live, what we would call scripture. One scholar put it this way, he said that to teach for Paul means the public transmission of authoritative material in the context of the church. It's someone standing before God's people and saying, thus says the Lord. This is what God has to say to his church today, just as I'm doing right now. That's why Paul refers to the two basic responsibilities of elders in chapter 5, verse 17. If you want to flip over there for a second. Paul describes elders there in chapter 5, verse 17. And he says there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There are the two roles of the authority figures in the local church. Elders are you have elders who govern who rule over who who have responsibility for and shepherd the church and among them you have some that have this particular responsibility to preach and teach and so there you have that parallel with what Paul saying here I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men he's talking about the position of authority in the local church what does that practically mean well most obvious meaning is that the authoritative offices, elder and deacon, those that are ordained, which is what it means to be ordained, is to have authority placed upon your shoulders, that the elders and deacons are to be men. What that means then, for many PCA churches, they actually make a very simple distinction then. If you're not ordained, you're free to do everything that a non-ordained person can do. In other words, men and women who are not ordained, there's no distinction between them. That it's ordination and designation of authority that makes the distinction. So it's elders and deacons. I personally would add another restriction. I think that doesn't go quite far enough. Because I think Paul purposely adds teaching to authority. To show that in teaching God's word or preaching God's word, there is kind of an inherent authority. And so I would have that. My view is that you should, that, that view of preaching and teaching God's word to God's people in the context of the gathered church of God should be done by men. So elders, deacons, and those who officially on the, under the authority of the church teach and preach God's word should be men. And so... Whereas in some PCA churches, you will have women teaching men, adult men, in a Sunday school class or a Bible study. At this point, that's not the position we have here. We would say that if the word of God is being exposited, being exegeted and exposited for God's people so that we are saying, thus says the Lord, in behalf of the official authority of the church, that that is done by men and not to be done by women if adult men are present. There is ways in which women certainly teach in the church. Women teach other women, women teach children. Women can teach men until they reach the point that they are heads of their own household. We also know that women teach privately. Apollos was taught by Priscilla in the home, in a private setting, outside of the context of the official authority of the church. So it's within the church men are to be in positions of authority and I believe should be teaching and preaching the Word of God to be consistent with what Paul is teaching here. But before we wrap this up there's one thing we have to do this is what Paul does because is this really for our culture or was it only for the first century was it only for the church in Ephesus? What does Paul give as the basis for these roles, these distinction in roles in the church. Many evangelicals say that this passage doesn't really apply to us today because Paul was addressing a cultural situation in the first century church, particularly in Ephesus. They say that the women that he's referring to here is a a small subset of all the women in the church in Ephesus, those that were false teachers. And we do know that there was a problem with false teaching in Ephesus, that's true but they are able to dismiss what Paul says here by saying well Paul's only addressing false teaching women they're the ones who are to be silent and to not have positions of authority That's, you know I would call that interpretation of this passage what we call eisegesis instead of exegesis. Exegesis tries to draw the meaning out of the text eisegesis reads meaning into it. There is nothing about false teaching in this chapter Paul is giving instructions about how to worship in the church And there's nothing about false teaching here. But even more than that, more importantly than that, Paul bases his distinction in the roles between men and women, not in culture, but in scripture, in the history of the creation of man and woman. He goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. His first reason is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, that may strike you as an odd reason. Why does the fact that Adam was created first before Eve mean that in the church and in the home, the husband gets to be the head of the household and the wife is to submit to his authority? Well, what Paul's alluding to here is something that any Jewish reader would have readily understood because they understood the idea of the firstborn in the family. The firstborn was the one who was born first and was automatically given certain privileges and responsibilities as the as the firstborn in the family the firstborn child the firstborn son had more authority in the family than any of his other brothers or sisters he had privileges and responsibilities that were related only to the fact that he was born first chronologically firstborn children firstborn sons weren't didn't gain that position by merit They didn't gain that position by anything about themselves at all, except the fact that they were born first. And so so Paul is saying here, because Adam was created first, he was designated with the privileges and responsibilities of being the covenant head of the family. Interestingly, I think that's why the Bible, from that point on, attributes the sin that brought the fall, the first sin that we are accountable for, that that is attributed to Adam and not Eve, even though Eve was the one who committed the sin first. It's because Adam was the covenant head of the family and he was ultimately accountable for what Eve did in her sin. Adam was born first, not Eve. Then Paul gives a second reason and it's related to Eve's sin. He says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let me make it clear. A lot of people read this just kind of on face value and they think they really misunderstand what Paul's saying. Paul is not say, trying to say that women are more gullible than men. I've heard men, people even seriously exposit it that way. He's not saying that women are more gullible than men. What he's doing is he's calling Eve to account for the sin of rejecting her God-given role in this first family. She didn't learn quietly with all submissiveness. Instead, she exercised authority over Adam. She usurped his role. And led the family into darkness and death. In the kingdom of God, as it exists right now, authority comes from the top down. God is the ultimate authority and all authority comes from him. It is within the church and the home, the two basic building blocks of the kingdom of God, that authority goes to the head of the household and the heads of the church. And those are given, that role is given to men. And then the women are given the roles of submitting to the authority of the man in the home and the church. And all of us are given authority by the power of Christ's victory over Satan. But you notice what Eve did is she actually inverted the order. Satan directed the, 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 the whole course of history. And Eve took his direction, submitted to his teaching and his deception. And then Adam followed Eve. Eve and submitted to basically her authority and her decision making and by doing so they rejected God's authority over them. You see Paul is saying that God has made this distinction between the genders and it began at creation and it has continued down through history and it's based not upon any inherent superiority or inferiority between the two genders It's based on God's inscrutable designation of men to lead in the home and the church. The passage ends with a very odd and cryptic statement. Paul, in that last verse, verse 15, says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's fascinating to read commentators and their ideas of what Paul's trying to say in that verse. Some commentators, very conservative commentators that I look up to and respect, they'll say that what Paul is saying there is that women will be preserved through the physical act of bearing children. Well, that doesn't even make any sense. First of all, we know that that's not always true. Women are not always preserved through childbearing. Obviously, Paul's not talking about physical, the physical act of childbearing and being preserved physically through it. A lot of other commentators say, well, Paul's referring to motherhood and matter of fact some of them go to the point of, of managing the home that in motherhood and managing the home the woman will be saved and they always struggle with what does saved mean in that sense. But obviously not all women are called to motherhood. Not all women do serve in the context of the home. So that, I, 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 that, that interpretation doesn't fit with the rest of scripture either. I think the right interpretation of this is actually much more profound and much more exciting. John Stott and Phil Riken are two, the two commentators that I uh, refer to often. Both of them say that Paul, point out here that Paul is using the word saved, this word in Greek is sozo, and that word is always used by Paul for spiritual salvation. He's not talking about physical preservation, he's not talking about earthly uh, a deliverance in any sense he's talking about salvation as we use the words being saved spiritually that's why he refers to faith and love and, and holiness and self-control he's referring to spiritual salvation in this verse and then they point out very important to note that the word the comes before childbearing for the woman will be saved through the childbearing referring to a specific childbearing and what childbearing is he referring to? Well, Paul has just, in the verse before this, referred to the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. And what else is in Genesis 3? They are, given, they are cursed because of their sin, separated from God, but there's the promise of the gospel in chapter 3. Chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15 Where God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I do think that Paul is referring here to the the particular childbearing of the Virgin Mary, of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. That salvation would come through... Woman, uh, this woman giving birth to the Savior. Jesus Christ is the offspring of the woman and he has come to defeat Satan and to undo the effects of Adam and Eve's sin. And he has come to restore godly authority to his church. We are to be a shining light in the midst of a culture that has lost the concept of what authority is for, what it's meant to do, what it's meant to be. And in Christ, we are able to accept the roles that God has assigned to us. The effect of Christ's saving work on the cross is that we don't live selfishly for power and status in this world. And whatever power and status we have is to be used for the benefit of others. That's what's going to stand out before the world. Too often the discussions about a man's role and a woman's role in the home and the church gets into this battle of pride. It's not about pride. It's, as a matter of fact, it's much about the opposite. That being an authority is being a servant, it's being last. Laying down your life, dying to self for the sake of others. And if we exercise that kind of authority in the home and the church, first of all I don't know of a woman who wouldn't love to be the focus of that kind of authority. To have the head of the home or the head of the church laying down their lives for your well-being to build you up to strengthen you to pre- present you as a spotless bride before Christ who wouldn't want to live under that kind of authority and if we exhibit that kind of authority in our homes and in the church we can change the world let's pray